All right, we're live. Another episode of Monero Talk. Um, we just keep getting better and better guests over here, not to uh, belittle the, the previous guests, but uh, it's great. We have uh, Michael Casey. Um, Mike, if you want to just give a quick background, I don't know if everybody knows who you are, especially the newbies in the space. I certainly uh, am very familiar with your name and your work um in 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 the space i mean I'll, I'll let you speak but uh my first memory of you was kind of being one of the the mainstream uh where i first saw the mainstream media talking about bitcoin in an intelligent way um mm-hmm. when you i guess it was the wall street journal right that you right. used to work with That's and exactly. uh, that that was kind of my earliest memory of you was oh wow this the mainstream media is starting to get it uh, but yeah, uh, if you want to, if you want to quickly uh, talk about how you got into the space and where you yeah. currently are in the space. Yeah. Okay. So I was a journalist for most of my life. Uh, had spent sort of eighteen years of that um, at Dow Jones and the Wall Street Journal. Spent a lot of time writing about currencies and macro affairs, so you know bonds and economies and things like that. And so when you know Bitcoin sort of appeared on my uh, radar, I just thought what the hell is that? Um, you know, this strange digital currency. Um, I think my first reaction was that of many people who don't sort of think like the typical uh, crypto guy was to say, why on earth would I want that? Um, and kind of question its legitimacy. Uh, and at writing a column about it, because as I say, from the context of currency reporting, it was interesting and wrote, a pretty ordinary column and then got called out for dinner by a bunch of guys who were investing in the space and said, look, you know, you, you don't really get it and uh, laid out to me what the really exciting innovation was underneath it, why it mattered. And um, that was it. I was, I was hooked. Um, I mean, I, I've lived, I had lived a chunk of my time in Argentina. So I spent six years down there. Uh, two years in Indonesia, I chased financial crises all over the world. So I started to get, uh, I, I knew there was, this was a new way for me to think about the problems that I'd always encountered in those places as a journalist covering the kind of fundamental financial challenges in places like that where trust is broken down and where development is 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 held back by some of these fundamental institutional problems. And so, you know, thinking about Bitcoin and this sort of censorship uh, resistant uh, ledger as a way to you know imbue so much more confidence in a system of value became a really powerful idea for me so we ended up writing a book about that my colleague paul when and i we launched a column called bitbeat that we wrote on a regular basis paul's now moved on to pretty much lead the crypto coverage out of the wall street journal and the two of us wrote a book called the age of cryptocurrency uh, which we published in early 2015. And by that stage, I had decided that I wanted to do more than just report about this. I wanted to get involved. I left the journal. I was hired to become the senior advisor uh, at uh, the Digital Currency Initiative at MIT Media Lab. Um, and I also started teaching a class at Sloan, MIT Sloan. I uh, got involved in doing a lot of research over there, largely around you know social impact types, uh, type applications for blockchain technology. Very interested in distributed energy systems and the like. Um, and but also found myself doing a lot of public speaking and writing. And uh, in the context, was then taken on to become the chairman of the advisory board at CoinDesk, 
Um, so uh, where I write a weekly column, this is the one that you're referring to, sort of found myself getting back into media. Uh, so actually now I'm, I'm actually launching a, a media company of my own that I, I don't really need to go too much into right now. But um, so I'm still very much in the media world, a commentator, a writer, a public speaker. We then wrote a second book called The Truth Machine, which was more about broader applications of of uh, blockchain uh so i'm still doing a lot i'm still still at mit still advising the digital currency initiative but sort of have paired back some of that time um largely still very much in the kind of you know uh conversation communicating educating uh role within within this space hopefully that wraps it up well yeah i mean i've, I've there's so, i feel like there's so much we could talk about here and uh you know and the research i started to do about you realizing you know there's a million things we could talk about um but i know we're kind of limited with with your time today so i wanted to just really focus on um the article that you had written back in the summer on privacy but before we get into that what year did you start because i guess when i opened this i started talking about how my first impression was when i was reading about reading your articles i was i was impressed in that you were conveying uh yes. these complex ideas to the mainstream in an intelligent way so i, I guess i missed those initial ones where <laughs> Yeah, the first one, exactly. You missed that first one. You don't need to go back and look at that one. Don't bother yourself too much with that. That was in uh, 2013. And then I, okay. I went to the North American uh, Bitcoin conference and sort of started to get interested in it from there. How was, um, how was it on that side of things in the beginning? I mean, were, were the people in the mainstream media, were they looking at you like you like you lost it? Like, what what yeah, is this guy doing? Somewhat, I mean, and they knew there was this crazy thing going because that stage, remember, there was a, another boom. It was a, it was a, an early bubble before the most recent bubble, um, and uh, uh, so that was they were interested in it from a weird phenomenon. But none of us were really thinking. It was very hard to convey to them anything beyond the, oh, is this going to be another currency that will take over? You know, it will compete with the dollar. And the stories at that stage were all about how Microsoft is accepting Bitcoin or. Um, you know, that's what got them excited, the idea that there might be a whole payment system emerging around Bitcoin. You know, we were more interested in sort of understanding the Internet of Value concept underneath that and sort of really a, a, the, the plumbing of the system. And that was near impossible to con convince my editors to think about, right? Now that we have this sort of ridiculous blockchain without Bitcoin kind of meme that's out there, they get excited about it, but they still don't fully get it. Um, it's just that, uh, you know, where we go, they go through these interesting circles. The mainstream has obviously come a long way, um, but, um, you know, it, it's still very short of, of a sophisticated understanding of what I think it should be. And, and I just found that process kind of a bit frustrating, to be honest. You've, I mean, you've consistently been very, you know, taking a very journalistic approach for good reason, seeing that you're, you know, you started off as a journalist in the space. Um, but have you kind of grown, uh, kind of ignoring, putting journalism aside, are, are there, is there kind of a passion there for the technology itself and like the, the ideals it stands for and like its potential yeah. impact and like yeah, you know, I mean there's the whole cypher it this came out of the cypherpunk movement um a lot of it you know yeah. is do you yeah, so so I'm always I'm always you know uh, uh, I, I like to think of myself as an independent thinker as a kind of a and I think I'm probably a moderate I would I, I definitely wouldn't put myself in the hardcore libertarian camp um you know, and I'm not you know overly left or overly right or anything really. I I, I just I'm very interested in what works and what doesn't, um, and I and I sort of like to look back and understand things from that 
perspective. So, you know, like a journalist, you question a lot of, of every position. But but I would say, you know, because I'm a commentator, a columnist, I, you know, I, I do tend to take a position. And in particular, the, the column that we want to talk about, um, you know, I, I looked at it not to say I, I didn't come at it from a classic kind of cypherpunk. We all must have privacy so that I can be, you know, free from all observation from anybody and protecting it from a human rights perspective. As much as I respect that position, I have a, um, you know, I, I think there's some nuances in, in that. What I was more interested in was like getting people to think differently about privacy and getting sort of more conservative mindsets to think differently about it uh, so that they can recognize the value of it as an underlying and underpinning component of of exchange in general, right? Of, of how money systems work. And, and so and so that's kind of, so, so I know you were asking me broadly about my sort of philosophy. It's interesting that if you think about the column in particular, it kind of captures where I come from. It's, I'm not, I'm not hardcore either way, but I really do appreciate some of the finer points that I, I probably didn't appreciate as much from the kind of cypherpunky libertarian perspective. Um, I, I don't know if whether, maybe I've swung a little bit closer to that direction, maybe not, but I'm certainly, uh, uh, I see a lot of, I, I take a lot from that world and see, and help, it helps me understand, I think, how some things work in ways that I probably didn't as much before. Right. And is it because I don't want to put words in your mouth, but is it because I think you express this really well in the article? Is it also because more so you see the value proposition of crypto really being the censorship resistance and this ability to send transactions uh, without being censored, unconfiscatable wealth, and the fact that these things. Sh- need to be fungible for them to work. So not even so much that it's about privacy, but the cypherpunk ideals align with the value proposition of what the invention of what Satoshi's white paper and Bitcoin is meant to do. Is that is that yeah, I think, I think for certain applications, for many applications of certain applications of crypto, definitely for standard payments. If we are going to create um, peer-to-peer cash, you know, that which is really what Satoshi was trying to create. If we were to, if we were to aim for financial inclusion in the developing world, so that people could now have cash in a digital form, then we absolutely need to create all of these features, right? We need the censorship resistance. We need privacy. We need those features because otherwise, you're not mimicking cash. You you you're basically creating a surveillance network. And why would somebody? who is used to not having their transactions surveilled uh, want to operate in that world. I think it's a little different when you know, crypto is a broad tent now, right? There's so many different applications for it. And I'm open to, to ways in which identity can be embedded into these systems and that there might be. I'm not, I'm not a Puritan. I think there are all sorts of interesting ways. I'm also not necessarily hell-bent on everything being a public permissionless blockchain. I think there's real value in some private structures. I don't know if they should be called blockchains or not, but either way, that movement towards private distributed ledgers, which obviously entails you know, a much lesser definition of, of censorship resistance um, is uh, still have some value, right? We should think about what the applications are. Um, I do think that that the one way to think about it is there's a kind of an absolute version of this. There, there's this sort of purely decentralized, 
fully censorship resistant model. I don't think we're ever going to get there, to be honest, because I think there's there's trust in every system somewhere, and there's always ways in which you can backdoor into discovering information about people. But the, but you can get much 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 closer to that, and obviously Monero is at the forefront of trying to reach those 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 kinds of ideals. And I think that's the way to approach this: is like, okay, where on the continuum do we need to be for this particular application, and what are the values in that? And and so yeah, that that's that that's pretty much it. And I, and I think the thing that I was trying to get at the column was to say, you know, fungibility is fundamental uh, for money. Um, and and so you know, how we will ever be able to replicate it if you don't have privacy at that component is is something I, I just don't know how we ever get there. In fact, we could just bog the whole system down if we were to laden it. I mean, I think we I think it's interesting. You can even think about. That money as a system, and think about the global payments mo model that we currently have in the fiat world, and look at how it really doesn't work very well at all, right? I mean, money does move around, but our perspective is, is so limited. We think about how it works for a big hedge fund or a large multinational. Sure, they can move money around, but try to be a little guy in Somalia who tries to get money from your cousin in New York, and you can't because you know there's a there's a sort of a blanket ban on the remittance houses in those places because they can't be KYC properly, right? So so money already doesn't function properly. Money already isn't fungible because money from a Somalian you know ethnic in New York is of a lesser value, right, than the money that goes from a multinational in New York to a multinational in London. That's not a fungible money as far as I'm concerned. Right? So, so we're already falling short. Uh, and so the question of financial inclusion, which I care deeply about, uh, I think really needs us to break down a lot of that sort of identification uh, barrier and resistance to, to how we, we actually engage in value exchange. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, that, that's really where I'm coming from in this structure. So do you see this as a as like a possibly a critical flaw in Bitcoin or do you think Bitcoin can get around this? Do you think Monero or some other coin is going to come in and take its place? I mean, well, I I'm, I'm, I'm not trying to get you to choose a coin, no, but... I understand. No, that's good. And I think you phrased it well. I mean, I, I am very cautious about not wanting to be, uh, you know, making investment calls. Um, I know. I, I do think there's a flaw in Bitcoin for that reason. I totally understand that. I, th I think that... Um, yeah, I mean, if we're talking, again, specifically about the kind of applications of a peer-to-peer -peer cash that I think is really valuable for the world, then Bitcoin is going to fall short um, at, under its current structure. It, it won't fulfill those needs. It also really can't function at the large corporate level as well, right? Because other companies need to have privacy in their, in their transactions as well. So, yeah, I, I, I do think that on that exchange level, it is now. I think Bitcoin, just because of its its size, its uh, its first mover advantage, um, the security that comes with all of that, everything else, you know, there's a there's an interesting store of value story that I think persists, even if it's even if it's flawed as an exchange vehicle um, because of it, right? Right. Yeah. I mean, the only thing I would say there is, you know, have you read Safedine's book? The like the the, I, uh, the I, Bitcoin I standard. I guess you get you get the concept, but um, I mean, but even that, I mean, do, should, doesn't gold is fungible, right? So we're, if we're calling if we're calling Bitcoin the new digital gold, how do how yeah. do we ignore the fact that it's it's lacking that component? Even if 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 we uh, you know put transactions aside, um, I, I just I just 
fail well, to well, see it's, how you can. It's, it's, a, it's a contradiction, right? Because the reason why you would want a digital gold is because it's it can be exchanged more readily than gold can be, right? And so if that exchange is limited by the the the, the fact that it's not as private as you want it to be, then why would you go for it? I, I'm suggesting though that there are just gradients within all of this, and that and that sort of people do give up privacy sometimes for transactability, um, and. And that, that the sort of other elements of Bitcoin might hold it out. I'm not. I'm, again, I'm not. I'm not a maximalist by any stretch. Um, and I am. Uh, I think the work that gets done by, you know, the really smart cryptographers at places like Monero and Zcash, and you know, th th this is an incredibly valuable amount of work that's being done for the broad crypto community to be able to. Uh, grapple with these really complex, difficult uh, privacy challenges, and eventually the system will emerge that, you know, embraces features from all of them. Um, you know, I think it's interesting to see what will happen with Lightning and other layer two applications, whether that, you know, enhances the privacy component. Um, and, and, and some of the uh, applications that are being built on smart contracts on Lightning are really interesting the way they have blind oracles and, and these sorts of things in there. Um, so, you know, I, I think the... <laughs> It's still a long way to go before we know who the winner is, uh, but but clearly Monero and Zcash um, have struck a chord on a very important element of of what you know needs to be built out within this key element of of the uh, of the crypto space. Yeah, I mean, I think your article described it in in ways that I've I've thought about, but was never able to put into words, and that's why I was I just really wanted to get you on the show. I thought you really explained it well. Um, I love the way how you were call, essentially calling money uh, a communication tool. I don't know if you just if you just want to explain that a little bit. Um, yeah, I, mean, I thought that I thought that was a great way of looking at it. Yeah, I mean, money money essentially is uh, a means of um, uh, communicating a transfer of, of debt, really, or of value. I mean, people debate whether it's debt came first or barter and everything else. But at the end of the day, the, what the, its function in society is is just to basically be a communicator of, of uh, who's up and who's down, you know, who, who's in credit, who's in debit. And um, we think of it as, as a thing, as a, as a sort of a physical thing. But if you were to uh, now laden that communication system with this traceability, uh, all of a sudden the messaging from, from one person from other carries a different value. Uh, and and you and you've now got um, a, 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 a very different attachment of information to that particular communication. So now, you know, if I am, uh, yeah, if, I, if if my if my money uh, carries with it all the traceability of its past, or then that communication that I'm making is also a communication of the fact that maybe. You know, five, six, seven, eight, ten transactions ago, some crook had done something, right? And and now it, it's inherently worth less if it carries the risk of a lien. So I think I think you know the the the, the very risk of attachments and liens and then actions that relate to the history of a particular you know store of value, a particular source of value, undermines its capacity to function as a flat kind of hundred percent neutral communication system. Um, you know, and we and we wouldn't, yeah. I mean, if you had to, I I think I thought about this as well in terms of of you know bulk commodities, and um, 
And even though a lot of folks in the blockchain space are trying to actually bring a kind of non-fungible aspect to all the information that runs along the supply chain, so you can actually point specifically to know where something has come from, the, the current model of, and I don't think how you're going to get away from it, uh, of bulk commodities is to assume that it doesn't really matter where this grain has come from. If you, if you knew that it was Argentine or it was Chinese, then maybe you would pay a different price for it. But you wouldn't have anywhere near the same efficiency if there is the, um, you know, if, the, if, the, if there were that uh, uh, distinction, this distinguishing between different grains, right? So there's a fungibility of a commodity in that sense that is that is critical to the the ability to actually exchange value. So do you think the technology, uh, Monero, or whether it ends up being something else that does what Monero is trying to do, which is, you know, fungible digital cash, do you think it's that essentially that it's it's inevitable that it ends up taking off and working? Or is it possible that even though it would lead to a more efficient gl global economy where we're using it as a communication tool to, you know, seamlessly and efficiently efficiently zap uh, value around the world, uh, could we kind of get in our own way? Could governments get in the way uh, through regulation and kind of prevent this beautiful technology from from sprouting? Um, or taking yeah, well, if you, if you use this, give me, I'm just running out of juice. Let me just plug my laptop in. Hang on. Here it comes. Very good. Um, so I think the way you described it, my answer would be yes, right? From sprouting or from spreading maybe, right? I think sprouting is a hard thing to stop. There will always be uh, – it's kind of a cat and mouse game. Um, I, I think it's very hard to uh, – it will be very hard to produce a mass adoption version of this without – certain regulators in places that have a critical mass um, recognizing the value of this particular model. Um, there's always going to be ways to catch people and shut them down. Um, you know, and, and, and that's scary, right? Because developers working on really good projects like this, um, you know, they, they, they're, they're somewhat at risk if, if, there, is a, if, there, if there were to be some backlash and a need to, to shut these things down. So I think we all should be doing as much work we can educating people as to the benefits of this. I don't, I don't buy into the sometimes, you know, West Coast cypherpunky view that if we just build this, we can escape uh, the clutches of the law. I, I, the law is very, very powerful. Uh, we, we saw this like with Shapeshift um, having to, you know, change its model. They, they, they knew they had to uh, respond to the pressures they were getting from law enforcement. Um, and, and so it's a reality. I, I think we need to be, you know, pragmatic about it. And that doesn't mean that doesn't mean diminishing on your principles. It means sticking with your guns, but about engaging with regular, engaging with people and why this matters, right? Which is why I, I write the kind of stuff that I do um, is, is, is I, I don't think it helps. It oh, doesn't, it doesn't not help, but if, if the only way that, 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 you know, you know, your average congressman thinks about something like Monero is as some tool for criminals to move money around the world. And they don't get the bigger picture as to why privacy is important as a system, then we have a problem, right? Because if all you do is stand up and say, this is about my human rights and I need to be able to have my guns and my, and my spam and my Monero and leave me alone, 
whatever your view is on the the sort of social and human right aspects of all that, the, the libertarian perspective, it's just not going to fly once these guys get their tentacles into it. What really needs to be is a, is a discussion about why do we need to have this privacy? Why does it help everybody? And why does it help the system? Yeah, I think, uh, I think, I mean, the Bitcoin community, I think, you know, has a lobby group, right? Or at times had a lobby group, right? Yeah, um, no, no, there's, 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 well, just today, you know, Peter Van Valkenburg from Coin Center was down there. And, and, you know, he's not really, I don't think Coin Center really is a Bitcoin lobby group. It came from the early days of Bitcoin, but, you know, they really do stand up for the rights of crypto generally and, uh, and the blockchain community. So, you know, he's down there, he, you know, making all these kinds of cases. I mean, those guys are doing, doing great work. Um, mm -hmm. You know, he was up against Nuriel Rabini, who was screaming all his other perspective on the other side. But um, you know, it, it's it's a conversation, and and look, more and more um, folks are getting it. It takes a long time, but um, uh, Senator uh, Republican Emmer, um, Bob Emmer, I think his name is, uh, uh, came out the other day and, and you know just joined the caucus, uh, the blockchain caucus, and I was thrilled to hear him cite out my book as helping him kind of realize that. Uh, and this is a story in Breaker Mag, and he was saying, you know, um, we really, I really wish that Congress would stop just fixating on the whole idea of criminality and understand all the other features of crypto. So this mm -hmm. is coming from a congressman. You know, it's good to see those kind of guys who have a little bit of a revelation at some point, and that my book played a role in helping him get there was kind of fun. Um, uh, and, you know, and we can. I think we need we need a bigger kind of wave of awareness. Uh, how we get there, uh, you know, we can all just keep trying. But um, you, you can't. I don't think just putting a stake in the ground in some island and saying we're going to run our our life here and leave me alone. It to me is pointless. I, I, I want to have an entire you know system that, that that achieves things like financial inclusion and resolves some of these big problems. I don't really care about. You know, me protecting my wealth. I'm I'm just fine, thank you very much. It's 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 how we can improve the world that really matters. And on that basis, we need the engagement of governments. I don't see any other way around it. I mean, do do you think maybe the Monero community should maybe start its own lobby group to start trying to make these arguments? Because I mean, you you have Bitcoin, right? And and they've it's it's very easy to go stand in front of a you know a committee and say you know we built this this beautiful transparent ledger where you can now see all the everyone's transactions. It's uh, I think there was a, there was a little fear at first, but now once everybody realized, wait a minute, this is all completely transparent. It's it's right. it's it's a great thing for governments, right? Okay. Whereas the the argument for uh, privacy coins and, and and true cryptos is a little harder to make. I think you made the arguments really well in your article. In, yeah. in that you kind of uh, talked about free speech and the fact that it will, uh, it's something vital that will add. It's a vital component that's necessary for these things to actually work. Um, but it's it's obviously a lot harder to make those arguments in a yeah. political arena. Yeah, it, it is. Although I would argue that Bitcoin's, the, the, the kind of coming around of acceptance of Bitcoin was partly about traceability and then recognizing that it wasn't. But it was also that there was an understanding of some of the benefits of, of, of its version of immutability and its version of censorship resistance, right? That there was some, I mean, if you, you really do get guys in the regulatory community now who at least understand that argument. Mm -hmm. And that was an easy one for them to get. Um, I, I, yes, I do think it's hard. I really don't think that Monero going out on their own is, is, is necessarily helpful. Um, and I would also argue that in the Bitcoin community, people who care about Bitcoin, there is a lot of people who side with the pro-privacy position of the Monero crowd. 
um, you know, there's been work done on this already, right? Um, by by Mimble Wimble, and you know, there's a number of different people within the whole Bitcoin Core related crowd who are looking hard at how they might try to tap privacy back onto Bitcoin. I would say it's one of the most prominent conversations around Bitcoin core developers. So the Bitcoin community, to the extent to which they're aligned with that crowd and can be, you know, aren't necessarily that far away from, from where you guys come from either. I, I think fragmenting the, the lobbying effort isn't, isn't nearly as effective. It's you're up against these massive deep pocket institutions, you know, I mean, like somebody was just looking at the, the the 10 year anniversary of the HSBC money laundering hack with with Mexico. I can't remember how many hundreds of billions of dollars went through that system. There was a pretty big fine. Nobody went to jail, right? And the amount of corruption that was passing through that system is is profound. And we've already had, you know. A bunch of crypto guys go to jail. Whether they should or shouldn't is not my point. But the point is that the banking system is is I'm all right, mate. I've got I've got all of these the, the this funding. I've got loads of, of congressmen in my pocket, right? Um, to 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 come up against that, there needs to be the united front. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and I'm not a big conspiracy theorist. This is I don't think this is a conspiracy theory. I think this is the way the world works. Congress is in the pocket of Wall Street. And, um, and and I think that that's really that's really the enemy here because that's the system that we need to reform. And I do think that privacy is a critical component of how we reform that system. Um, but I wouldn't see it as a us versus them. I think there's way too much division in the crypto world as it is. So I would I would want to see. Yeah, I definitely didn't need to categorize it as us versus them. Just as maybe they're because. They they don't really have the incentive so much to to talk about the privacy component. Yeah, you know it's, it's about getting Bitcoin. Well, I, would engage with, I would engage with Coin Center. I would engage with you know the digital money. Uh, what's it called? The digital chamber. Maybe I think the Coin Center would be a, a more aligned effort. You know, um, I, I definitely think that uh, the Monero community seeking to engage with. You know, smart thinking, sympathetic congressmen who can help to drive that conversation, and also, in, in, I would just say, just as importantly, reaching out to regulators in other parts of the world, uh, you know, who are setting a standard that the U.S. may have to follow. Um, that's also useful. And then, of course, there's this interesting developments happening at the state level, like Wyoming's becoming more crypto friendly, and Arizona and Florida and others have written laws that may or not may or may not be well written, but they. Uh, are opening the door to different perspectives. So there's a lot that can be done. Um, I would just sort of treat it as part of the broader effort and and explaining the, the sort of the privacy component of it. So I definitely think engagement is is valuable without a doubt. Um, it's just you know what what's the strategy for doing that? Mm-hmm. So do you, so like you stated in your art. I mean, do you think there are free speech arguments to be made, or is that that was kind of a uh... An exaggeration. I mean, on a policy level, is, is are there free speech arguments that can be made to say why uh, you know Monero shouldn't be regulated and we should be allowed to freely uh, transact using our, our perfectly I, fungible I, currency? Yes, I do. I mean, and that and that's um, so that's that sounds like a contradiction, maybe because I'm you know, as I say, I'm, I'm I'm less I'm less associated with. Uh, um, I mean, I I suppose it's a free speech 
issue, but for the purposes of the functioning of the system, that's the way I come at it, right? I'm not, I, I, I'm not, I don't believe, for example, that uh, political donations, uh, you know, should be treated as, as speech, right? So this sounds like a contradiction, even though I'm saying that money is essentially a communication vehicle. Because I think that the realities of a political model are incredibly biased towards those who have a lot of money and versus those who don't. So our, our political system is going to be inherently distorted by the store of value that I have versus somebody else. But as an exchange function, right, that's actually a measure of a store of value of money. If I've got, if I own a lot of money, I can influence the political process. That to me is, is not a very appealing free speech argument. But to me, from the systemic level, to think about it as a free speech concept for the purposes of effective exchange so that the money we're getting from somebody else can cannot can be relied upon to be the same amount as everyone else to be fully fungible then yes it is a free speech concept right it's just how you come at it right i think if you break it down store value versus medium exchange maybe that's the way to think about it but i'm mm. just not particularly sympathetic to rich people and arguing strongly for their right to be able to buy out a congressman right that that right. to me right the kind of a, a breach of, of what it should be, but that's pretty much what free speech and money comes down to often, and I just don't really have any sympathy for it mm -hmm. for various reasons. <laughs> and then, so then I guess the the other argument. So if you if we ignored the free speech, I guess it's hard to separate them. Well, to separate. The, the other side would just be from a purely economic perspective that if you want to uh, create the most efficient economy, you know, yeah. global economy possible in this digital age we, right. need to, we need to support these fungible digital currencies yeah and look cash and gold have functioned for this purpose for you know centuries right that there's there's not the same they're not censorship uh, uh they're not so much censorship resistant obviously you know cash that is 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 something that is the contingent upon a certain ledger key but that is central banks but the exchange function of that of that form of money um is is sort of free from surveillance and, and i think that's you know that's a reality you know you looked at what happened in india when they you know they cut back on rupee notes at a certain time and it created chaos so that the indian government's trying to steer people into a digital money that is sort of very centrally controlled and doing away with their cash and there were riots and all sorts of things um you know there, there has to be an understanding that particularly for the poor uh, who are the most vulnerable anywhere in the world, having the risk of their transactions surveilled is arguably even bigger than it is for a rich person, right? I mean, not not that they are, you know, not that they will be the target uh, of hacks and attacks because they don't have as much, but they are now incredibly vulnerable. They are already vulnerable and and, and sort of not being able to transact uh, sort of freely with the cash that they're used to is, is a challenge. So, you know, that that's really where I come at it from that, that perspective. I think that's really where I would like to begin all discussions around crypto and blockchain is how do we build something that helps out those who are not currently in the system? How do we make the system broader, more inclusive, more accessible? That's, that's the goal as far as I'm concerned. And so I come at it from that angle. So I know you wrote this article back in the summer. We'll wrap up because I know you got to go. But, I, um, but is is privacy and these things we were talking about today kind of forefront on your radar right now as to uh, where the crypto ecosystem is and what's important and kind of like um, where the battle lines are being drawn? One of one of the, the, the issues, I certainly wouldn't make it out to maybe my only one. I tend to range widely on a whole host of issues. But I would say that, you know, looking at, Privacy. I, I think that um, 
for all sorts of reasons, some you know a lot of the zero knowledge uh, work that's being done is is really interesting for how we might make um, the financial system function more efficiently. I think that you know these questions around decentralized exchanges, um, you know, uh, for the capacity to do atomic swaps between assets. Uh, questions about how you know we, we might have auditable logs. Uh, there's a great project at MIT called ZK Ledger, for example, so that you know we could actually uh, be able to audit work uh, without knowing you know the, the underlying details. You know the guys at Enigma focusing on you know how do we bring privacy into multi-computational work, uh, you know homomorphic encryption, all that sort of stuff. All of this is really going to be very, very important for how we build out the Internet of Value as a sort of a substructure, right? We need to have privacy in there if we're going to seamlessly move value around. Uh, it, it, it doesn't necessarily apply to this other question about the human element, but it's, the, it's that underlying function. So I'm interested in how we build that world. Um, and, and so it's from that perspective that I think privacy is really important, like rather than a... a human rights issue per se. Gotcha. Do you want to just, uh, I know you kind of mentioned in the beginning, but if you want to re-mention your, your two books or maybe just oh, talk yeah. about what, what each one was about. Yeah, I'm always a book shill. Um, yeah, so The Age of Cryptocurrency was the first book. Both of these books were written with myself and Paul Vigna from the Wall Street Journal. Um, the Age of Cryptocurrency was really an introduction to Bitcoin, its history, and, and why it matters. Uh, and then the follow-up book, The Age of Cryptocurrency, looked more broadly at a lot of the other projects that emerged out of that, some including Monero, but um, uh, also looking at you know, a lot of the blockchain applications, the smart contract applications, and all that sort of stuff. So, yeah, they're both written for the general audience, not necessarily the in-the-weeds nerd, uh, more, more of the, uh, the average Joe. Uh, that, was our, that was our intent both of them can we expect a book uh coming out about this topic we're talking about today uh uh it's exhausting writing books um <laughs> i think now's the time now's the time Dude, this is, this is uh, gonna be the year of uh, privacy well, one day, I'll, never say, I'll never say never but it's not it's not something that's <laughs> immediately on the desk no all right well all right, thank guys. you so much um we'll we'll keep reading your articles and uh okay know, thank you really appreciate okay. you uh giving your time to the monero community you're most welcome, Doug. Okay, good Thank luck. With the See you then. Bye-bye.